Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning, church. This is so strange, I have to say. It was so strange walking up to the building this morning knowing it would be mostly empty, but I'm so glad that I'm here to speak with you. I know you're behind the camera. Um, I've hoped, I hope you've gathered your family and some friends on the way up the sidewalk because I brought my whole family with me today. Uh, my, my daughter, Ella, said, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. And I know she meant, oh, I'm so excited to go to church and, and be with the community. And of course, it's, it's heartbreaking that we can't actually be together. Um, our Connect group met yesterday, uh, Saturday, and I, I can say it was so wonderful, all you who were there, to see you, to talk to you, to, to pray with you. Um, and I just want to encourage all of us right now to keep up those routines. As Justin said, this is a time to lean into the rhythms of the Spirit, um, not to kind of pull back. And of course, incidentally, incidentally, this is a key point in my message today. I'm coming to you today with the second installment of our series uh, on freedom. Uh, I'm going to be speaking to you about some barriers to experiencing the fullness of freedom in Christ, um, as well as what it might mean or what it can look like to live by the rhythms of the Spirit. Uh, Justin last week introduced several threads in the fabric of Christian freedom. One of those things was he reminded us of the way that Paul characterizes our current reality that our default setting is flesh, but God, through Jesus, offers us the gift of the, sp of a, the spirit of life that restores us to wholeness, that we might be free to be fully human, as God intended. Grab your Bibles, or click on that tab Justin was talking about, but hey, you're at home, you have a Bible lying around, I'm sure, maybe you've got one of those big coffee table Bibles, feel free, open that sucker. Uh, make a thud on the table. Turn your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 18. Paul is writing here to the church in Galatia. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to calling to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So this is interesting here because Paul's writing to believers, and he's saying that for the believer, there's a conflict that you can feel within you between the flesh and the spirit of life. Now, I want to spend some time on the word flesh. I think it's one of those words that's been lost in translation at times, uh, the Greek here that Paul is using is sarx, say that, sarx at home, S-A-R-X. It's got several separate meanings. One of those is just the material stuff that covers your bones, flesh. 
that's perhaps what a lot of you think of when you hear that word. But actually, more often, Paul is using it to mean something other than that, not the material covering our bones, but the part of us that's naturally bent away from God. He's talking about those unredeemed desires of our hearts that pull towards sin to live in a way that misses the mark of what it means to be human. That's one way you can think about what sin is, missing the mark of what it means to be fully human. So some teachers have inappropriately blended these two meanings of sarks or flesh to, to say that, well, this must mean that Paul is saying that our physical body is inherently evil. This is what we would call the dualist view, that our bodies and our souls are two separate things, body bad, soul good. Um, and that if that's the case, then true freedom in this worldview is found in death, when you can let go of your bad body and release your soul um, to something else. This is absolute rubbish. Okay, this is rubbish radically opposed to the biblical worldview and Paul's view of the body. You see, God made our bodies along with the material world and called all of it good. So it didn't become categorically bad after the fall. Even though, as Paul writes in Romans 8, you can flip uh, backwards to Romans 8, Romans 8, 22 to 24, he writes, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. So we're groaning. It's not bad. Our bodies aren't bad. Creation isn't bad. It's wonderful. But we're fallen, and so we're groaning. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our, our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? You see, the good news of freedom is not that we get rid of our bad, bad bodies, releasing our souls to heaven up there in the clouds, but that we have the hope of a new creation, meaning a redeemed earth, all mashed up with heaven again, and a redeemed body to use in it. So that's got implications for our life right now. That's the thing. If the goal isn't to release our souls up to clouds in the, in the heavens, then that means we are to love our bodies even in this life, to take them to be the resource for the spiritual life that God made them to be. Uh, that's a quote from Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite Christian thinkers and teachers. Paul puts it another way, Romans 6, uh, verses 13 and 14. Don't offer your bodily members to sin service as tools of wickedness. Instead, offer your body to God as those who are alive from the dead and devote the parts of your body to God as tools for justice and goodness in the world. For sin is no longer a tyrant over you. Indeed, you are under grace and not under the law. You see, part of the freedom we're called to in Christ is freedom from sin and death that our flesh is bent towards, and freedom from a works-based righteousness. That's what his last line there, you are under grace, not under the law, is referring to. Uh, that means that we are made right by Jesus' death and resurrection. 
We're, wa- we're made right in that way, not by anything we do. Nothing more, nothing less. Paul wrote passionately to the church in Galatia to not be influenced by teachers who said that they must follow the law to the letter to be acceptable to God. He says, no, it's not external behaviors that make you acceptable. It's your internal faith energized by love, as he says in Galatians 5, 6. But for Paul, that doesn't mean that your behaviors don't matter. Just because it's your, beha- your behaviors don't make you righteous, but they still matter. It's because you were made to be fully human, including to enjoy the fullness of what it means to have a body and commune with God and people that your behavior matters a great deal. It's because you were created for that. You see, one of the great lies of our time is that faith is like this tiny precious treasure and we can bury it and lock it up in our hearts and it's this private unseen thing. You know, my faith is private for me. That's a lie. Living under the grace of Jesus means that the treasure you have in your heart changes everything about your life. It's why Paul writes in this Galatians passage, you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. It's so interesting that he's so quick with this warning. He gives this great call, you're called to be free, and then right away, hey, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Why is he so quick there? It's because he knows freedom. The experience of freedom is a fragile thing, and it needs to be protected to be sustained. I'm going to say that one more time because I want you to get that. The experience of freedom is such a fragile thing that it must be protected to be sustained. Okay, so just to drive this point home, what Paul is not saying in this passage in Galatians 5 is your flesh is your body, and what your body wants is bad for your soul. That's not what he's saying. No. We exist in a fallen condition, and some of our desires pull us toward life without God. That's flesh. Some of that might come from your body, but some of it comes from your heart. Okay. Um, And this is what it means to be alive right now. We're in conflict with these two things. Uh, Just because we're... Uh, alive in Christ does not mean that our flesh is no longer a problem for us right here and now. Freedom has been won. Make no mistake, Jesus' death and resurrection is the thing that won and ordained your freedom. Nothing else, but we must participate in sustaining it. My grandpa once preached a message with the phrase, don't waste the grace. That's his way of saying what Paul's saying here. Hey, don't waste the grace. That phrase has become a catchphrase in my household. Adam and I use it all the time to remind ourselves of our priorities. Hey, don't waste the grace. Freedom is a fragile thing, and it needs to be protected in order to be sustained. Don't waste the grace. You know, Justin, one of the things he said in his uh, message last week was that the realm you choose to pledge your allegiance to, that is the realm of the flesh, the the realm of the spirit of life, Uh, will determine the freedom you experience in your life. So I'm going to spend the rest of my time today uh, addressing a few barriers to experiencing the fullness of freedom in Christ. I hope that's okay. 
So I've got three barriers. And again, these are a few barriers. There are who knows how many barriers. Um, but these are just some that I felt like preparing this week, these were the ones I should focus on. So the first barrier, you think that the best definition of freedom is to be free from restraints and impositions that feel like they go against your true self. That happiness is achieved when you turn inward and allow your authentic self to be unconstrained by external expectations, whether those come from your family, from societal norms, from, quote, the patriarchy, or even your body. This is a very popular worldview today. It's being taught in our schools all the way down to preschool level in language that preschoolers can understand. If this is your worldview, then you might think that Jesus offers little more than some rules to follow for the purposes of helping you to be good according to some outdated standards of morality. Or potentially you think something more nefarious is going on. You think that all those rules are there to keep some privileged elite in power. If that's you listening today, first of all, I'm super glad to have you. You're quite welcome. And second of all, I'd encourage you just to take another look at Jesus' life and teachings, and I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. You may not be ready yet to accept all of his claims, like the fact that he is God incarnate, but at least know for sure what you're rejecting and sort out what is cultural baggage in the form of this worldview and what Jesus actually said. Because I think there's a problem with true authentic self being your kind of benchmark for what it means to live the good life. The thing is, this, our authentic selves turn out to be a divided self. And if you're following that, you're still left with some decisions to make. Which self am I going to follow today? Here's just a, a kind of everyday example of what I mean. On Friday night, um, my family and I were walking home from dinner, getting some fresh air. It was about 7, so it was very close to Ella's bedtime. And she was having an absolute breakdown. Total, you know, three-year-old style breakdown. Uh, I don't want to go home, tears streaming. I want to go to the playground. 7 p.m., it's getting dark over and over. I don't want to go to the playground. You know, sitting on the sidewalk with her hands crossed uh, in rebellion against her parents who had said, no, we have to go home. Uh, we did let her swing, in case you think we're just utterly uh, parents who squash children's dreams of fun. We're not. We let her swing for a few minutes in the courtyard before going upstairs, where she fell asleep almost immediately after getting into bed as her papa was reading her a story. And you see, that's the thing. Her authentic self was screaming for the playground to stay up, but also screaming, although silently, for sleep. She was exhausted. She had already had a full day. Both desires are her authentic, true self but they're in conflict. Following one over the other leads to vastly different outcomes. Did we choose not to take her to the playground because we wanted to control her or keep her authentic self caged up? No, 
We do want to keep her base level desires in check, though, because the quality of her life is so much better for it. 2 Peter 2.19 says that people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. The choice not to have a master simply isn't available to us. But we do have the great choice, who or what will be your master, flesh or spirit. If you answer nothing, nothing will be my master, you're fooling yourself. Nothing is a proxy for myself and my own desires. Paul would call that a synonym for the flesh. Okay, moving on to second barrier. I assume, actually, that most of you who are tuning in today or maybe listening later actually have pledged your allegiance, as Justin said, to Jesus and the spirit of life. But I also recognize the truth that many of you still may feel burdened, not free. So what's going on? Well, this brings me to the second barrier, which is that perhaps you're acting as though Jesus is your sin manager. So that would be something like life consists of some church going, um, and because you really do believe, you believe the right thing, that Jesus freely offers his grace, you live as you like and cash in on your free gift regularly. I actually don't think most of us are that brazen. Um, more likely is that you're making some valiant efforts fueled by pure willpower to, quote, be good. But because willpower is a depletable resource, meaning, psychologically speaking, you have less willpower at the end of the day than you do at the beginning. Uh, willpower, you could think of it as a gas tank. It's empty by the end of the day. Some people seem to start off with larger gas tanks than other people, just have more willpower. Um, some psychologists also talk about it as a muscle that's weaker or stronger. But that means that if you're fueled by willpower alone, then you find yourself worn down sometimes, doing fleshy things even if you don't really want to. Like targeting your sexual desire at your computer screen or your coworker rather than your spouse. Or manipulating your boss at work to get ahead or placing some anger issues onto your child, reacting with rage when you should be responding with loving instruction. Your willpower fails. You are overwhelmed with guilt and shame, so you pray and ask for forgiveness. And Jesus, who you're treating as your sin manager, says, okay, I'll cancel this debt too. But then the, cycles, the cycle starts all over. Does that sound like freedom? Not to me. And the thing is, nowhere in Galatians or Romans, these passages about living in the flesh versus spirit, does Paul suggest this strategy he never says, buckle up, buddy, and try your hardest to overcome. The Daniel Tiger jingle my daughter sings sometimes, keep trying and you'll get better, does not apply here. It doesn't work. Willpower is no match for the deeply rooted patterns of sin, some of which you in your lifetime are not even directly responsible for. Maybe your parent had an anger issue and took it out on you and their parent and theirs. So, hey, waking up in the morning and saying, I'm not going to let my anger get the best of me today is not a fruitful long-term strategy. 
No, instead you need to get to know this shadow side. You need to examine it. You need to ask, where does it come from? Maybe you need some therapy. And you need to let go of a willpower-driven approach and settle into a rhythm with the spirit. More on what I mean by that after this last barrier. So third barrier. You've added Jesus into the pattern of your life instead of patterning your life off of Jesus' life. So that would mean you're trying to be like Jesus. That is your heart's honest desire. You want to be like Jesus. While the rhythm of your life overall looks like your secular neighbors with some church going added, sprinkled with prayer and Bible reading. But if you reflect on your spiritual maturity right now, if you compare how much spiritually mature I am now compared to last year or three years or five years or ten years ago, you might not see much of a change. You see, without a plan for spiritual development, the danger is you won't develop until you find that you've been a five-year-old Christian for 60 years instead of a 60-year-old Christian. You see, getting older while also attending church and praying before meals is not the equivalent of becoming more like Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, one of these uh, amazing passages that we love to use, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But I can't think of a heavier burden than trying to be like Jesus without actually patterning my life after his. What an enormously, ridiculously heavy burden. He was God. So if I'm trying to live up to perfection, I'm trying to do his deeds without adopting his overall lifestyle, I am not going to be experiencing an easy yoke. And the problem is, I think, that many Christians stop here. This whole, oh, ha-ha, laughable impossibility of, th- of this thought that we can't do it stunts us, and we stay baby Christians for our whole lives. Or maybe we seek self-improvement strategies primarily from secular sources because they seem practical, but Jesus seems impractical. And now, I'm not bashing all secular sources uh, for you know, living a more healthy life. They very well may help you become more adjusted, more well-adjusted in this life, but they won't give you a relationship with the creator of the universe who offers you the spirit of his life. This is instead to miss the fullness of the fruits and the fullness of Christ's freedom, to be who you are, uh, to be who who you were made to be. The message translation of Jesus' words in Matthew 11 famously uses this beautiful phrase to translate easy yoke. Um, It calls it the unforced rhythms of grace. Rhythms meaning a way of being, 
habits, a pattern to live by that bring life because the rhythm is in step with the very spirit that animates all of life. Shetel preached a couple of Sundays ago, um, back when we were still in the building, that we don't have to do anything to earn the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit when we accept Christ. He is the seal of our salvation. And that is utterly true, and I say amen. Paul reminds us here what's also true, that it's possible to be in or out of step with the Spirit in your life. The Spirit's got a rhythm, but so does your flesh. Which one do you tune your life to? You can muffle the Spirit's voice in your life. You can choke out its power, its freedom, by feeding your flesh and making an environment that's hard for him to dwell in. An example of a modern, widespread rhythm that many of us, including myself, have adopted without much self-examination. A study in 2016 found that we touch our phones an average of 2,600 times a day. That's a rhythm. That'll get you into a daily rhythm. A New York Times article just from this January uh, about someone who quit their smartphone penned an amazing line to describe her relationship she had built to her phone. She said, I hadn't intentionally chosen to worship my smartphone. However, once you repeatedly bow your head to one thing, stroking it thousands of instances a day, it begins to shine like an idol. Whoa. I felt two things when I read that line. One, conviction of my own habits. And two, jealousy that I didn't write it. It is so good. Now, I'm not saying smartphones are evil, of course not, but I'm saying that that rhythm to life with a smartphone for some of us can be a barrier to life in the spirit. It feeds my desire to always be in the know. And, you know, the news lately, I think, has turned up the, uh, the fire on that desire. We've got to constantly check what's going on. It feeds our need for voyeurism, to avoid feeling bored etc. Maybe your need to be liked, whatever it is. This is true confessions here. <laughs> what is the rhythm of your life? If that feels too big, what is the rhythm of your day? What punctuates your day? Again, Dallas Willard, in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Understanding How God Changes Lives, which I can warmly recommend if you need some reading in isolation says, our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else does. You're missing the mark if you're trying to resist the temptations of the flesh without replacing those desires with life-giving ones. Too many Christians take the freedom from sin. Woohoo, I'm free from sin and death. But then they don't carry it over to something else. Freedom from something without replacing it with what you can do with the freedom is meaningless. Then you're just sitting there. You're free from sin and law to experience life in the spirit. And this is all about apprenticing under Jesus. Willard argues that one reason we may not take the charge to actually do it, to apprentice under Jesus seriously, is because we don't take the idea that he had a body seriously 
And now you're, I'm connecting back to why I was talking about why our bodies can be a good thing or are a good gift. But you see, the human body is the focal point of human existence. I walk around, I do things, I eat, I drink, I, I move it to get from places, I sit down, I sleep. You know, my experience in my body is the focal point of my existence. And Jesus had one of those. He did the human things. And without the body in its proper place, the pieces of the puzzle of new life in Christ do not realistically fit together. And that's when the idea of really following him becomes this practical impossibility, this, this laughable thing. Well, that's really hard. I can't do it, so I won't try. No, Jesus engaged his whole body, his self, in spiritual practices like solitude, prayer, fasting, service, and community. His ability to love, to speak truth to power, to patiently endure suffering, to heal, and to resist temptations, all of those moments were fruit and evidence of a rich spiritual life that he engaged his whole self in. Now, there's no exact formula for spiritual disciplines or the rhythm of the spirit. And if discipline sounds scary or fancy or something, I just mean the stuff you do that helps you connect to the Father and to his kingdom. Remember the rhythm, we're talking about the rhythm of the easy yoke. It's not a checklist. Now, Dallas Willard, who I referenced, he does talk about some disciplines that likely should be on everyone's list. You know the ones, you know, prayer alone with God and study of the word. But others may not be on everyone's list. And before you think by discipline, I mean, you know, work or boring things. Celebration and play can be spiritual disciplines too. All of these would deserve their own sermon. Uh, putting my smartphone in the closet at certain times is a recent spiritual discipline for me. Maybe you don't need that one, but maybe you do. Um, as the band can come up and I start to close, I just want to give you a minute or two of silence here. Since you're at home, you might kneel, um, you might close your eyes, or you could stay just where you are. But I want you to really close yourself in here. Go to your, your secret place for a minute and prayerfully examine your life. Consider one small practical adjustment this week that could help you quiet the flesh, that would turn you away from those unredeemed desires of your heart that are pulling you away from God. And think about one practical thing you could do that would feed your spirit instead. Take a couple minutes.
Lord, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that your spirit lives in us, that you freely offer your spirit as a gift, Lord. That we don't have to do anything to earn our place with you, that we're free to be holy. We're freed from barriers that get in the way of our relationship with you and what it means to really be human that we can live out the purpose you have set forward, forward for us, Lord. But Father, you know that we, along with all of creation, are groaning right now. We're in this state of groaning. We've tasted the first fruits, but there's this conflict within us still, this battle between flesh and spirit, Lord. I just pray that you would speak to your church. Speak to your people today, Lord. Convict them in that gentle way that you do. Show them that a life lived in the spirit is so sweet, that that's the secret. That's the secret to the easy yoke. Some of you out there are trying so hard to be like Jesus. But you're holding your own self back because the patterns of your life look more like your neighbors than the Jesus we read about in the Gospels. It doesn't have to be that hard. But you got to make some adjustments. I pray that the Lord shows you what those are. I, if I can just encourage you to write down Whatever that practical thing was that you that came to you while you were praying, and of course you can keep meditating and praying about this, what is that one practical thing that you're going to change this week? Of course, you got to keep it up, right? It's got to become a habit, a rhythm. You know, you want your life to sing a song, not just hit a note every now and then. And here's where this gets crucial. You know, Justin talked about this in his service leading devotional out of John. That it's the time for the church to rise. But the church cannot fully be the church unless its members are walking in step with the spirit. You can't do it on willpower. The globe is facing crisis. And this is as much our time as any to be salt and light. To respond in the spirit, not in the flesh. Remember, in Galatians 5.13, Paul said, Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Somehow, flesh and love are opposites. That's so different from what we hear sometimes, that if you're doing things in the flesh, and we confuse some of those things for real love. But Paul is saying something here is opposite. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. But if you are, like me, captivated by Jesus, and I use that word on purpose, he takes us captive. You know, he, he, he captivates your attention and your affection because that's where discipleship or apprenticeship to him starts. You've got to be captivated by him. And then we're called to embody, live out in the actions of your body, your behaviors, the freedom that he offers. Not on your own willpower, but by the Spirit's power 
in our lives set to his rhythm. Amen.